everyone, this is Dr. Michael Wald, and you're listening to Ask the Blood Detective. I thought what we would do today is to address this coronavirus. The number of emails, uh, even snail mail that I've been receiving is uh, unprecedented. So many of you out there really want to know the truth, you know, what is really up with the coronavirus. So I'm going to begin first by laying a foundation of a little bit about what viruses are, uh, but mostly how viruses and other infections uh, affect our bodies, and what we can do to enhance what's known as our resiliency. It's the resiliency of the body, which includes our immune strength, so to speak, that is a major factor responsible for protecting us against all sorts of infections. Infections that the body's been exposed to before, that it might have some uh, natural immunity or acquired immunity, and hopefully in the case of the coronavirus where we have no natural immunity whatsoever. I'll first start by uh, providing a little disclaimer first that the information that I'll be giving you today, including uh, suggestions that I have regarding nutrition and lifestyle, are by no means meant to convey to you that they're definitely going to protect you from the coronavirus. I'm not going to tell you that large doses of vitamin C will kill the virus because it won't. Uh, but I will talk about vitamin C and I'll talk about other immune modulators because they are important for our immune system. And our immune systems are essential for protecting us against all sorts of viruses. So once again, those of you who know me, thanks again for joining. And those of you who have not uh, listened to uh, Ask the Blood Detective before, my name is Dr. Michael Wald. We talk about ways in which you can become your own blood detective. That happens through proper education and thinking in a holistic mindedness so that you can evaluate natural health information and medical information and any scientific information out there that has to do with uh, your health from a more correct, uh, thorough, and what I believe is the, the best perspective, which is a holistic mindset and a holistic cons, uh, context or construct. For your comments and questions, please give me a call at 914-552-1442. You can email me at info at blooddetective.com and you can certainly go to the website and read and listen to my many blogs and get lots of uh, technical information on not just the uh, coronavirus, but so many different aspects of your health. My website is absolutely loaded with free data. So just go to drmichaelwald.com. And I'm located an hour north of New York City, for those of you who are uh, curious about that. Okay, so the first thing is, we've got more than one immune system. We've got three basic immune systems, and no doubt uh, subsystems under that, but for, for all intents and purposes on this show, we've got three immune systems. And you could listen to my prior show, known as Everything Immune, during which I really describe lots of in lots of detail the three main different immune systems and what to do to strengthen them. Now, one of the immune systems is known as the cell-mediated immune system. And that means that there are various cells that mediate an immune response against an infectious uh, agent. So some of those immune cells are lymphocytes, for example. Those are the most important types of white blood cells that deal with viruses. And neutrophils, by the way, deal with bacteria. And eosinophils deal with parasites. These are generalizations, but they are pretty much true. So that's an example of the cell-mediated immune system where we have cells, like those three that I just mentioned, that manage our immunity against a foreign invader like the coronavirus. And then we've got what's known as a humoral immune system, which basically is sort of a chemical immune system, which involves immunoglobins. Very, very important. And then the third immune system is the complement immune system. And the complement immune system complements 
the work of the cell-mediated immune system and the humoral or immunoglobin immune system. Now, I'm not going to go into much more detail than that other than to impress upon you that we have more than one immune system. So when you hear information out there that says this is what you need to strengthen your immune system, it's probably wrong because we need different things, different nutrients, different lifestyle measures that manage different parts of the immune systems. So I'll talk about hygienic approaches and nutritional approaches and also dietary approaches meant to balance these three immune systems because when it comes to dealing with a novel virus, which means a virus like the coronavirus for which we have no natural immunity, our best attempt at improving our outcome if we are infected with it is to have a strong immune system. And we also know that people who are infected with the coronavirus, who has, who have, I should say, secondary health problems like hypertension and diabetes or underlying autoimmune disease, it seems that these individuals would do far worse when they're infected with the coronavirus. But that's actually true of lots of infections and not just viral infections, that if you have other secondary or tertiary health problems, you're simply more susceptible to a new health problem uh, having a worse outcome for you. And a worse outcome is the medical term, meaning you're not going to do well, or your chances of doing poorly with the infection are high. And I must say that I've gotten so many different questions about the coronavirus. I'm going to do the very best that I can to answer them. And I'll try to do it in a way that's not uh, boring. Um, I'll try to wrap it up into a story. But, um, well, here we go. So we know now, uh, depending on statistics, that we've got over 300 deaths, which is a very high mortality rate of any virus. And there seem to be more people infected with the coronavirus than was infected in, uh, with the SARS infection in 2003. So we know that the deaths of the coronavirus are in the hundreds right now. And besides the deaths, there are complications even when people uh, over are overcome by the virus, meaning that they seem to get over the virus, but sometimes there are secondary problems. We'll discuss some of these uh, concepts again later, and I'll make sure to try to repeat some of these important concepts too so we can really drill these details home. Now, the last time I looked at some of the statistics, we're dealing with over 14,000 people uh, inf uh, infected so far. And as I mentioned, just over 300 deaths. So that gives us about a 2% uh, death rate so far. That's a fairly high fatality rate especially to those that are, that are dying. In other words, I've heard some people on the news say that, well, that, that, you know, mortality rate's not so high, it's only 2%. You know, tell that to the families of people who've died from this. And by the way, as I recall, the SARS virus caused about 774 deaths, and we're already at over 300 in the short amount of time that we've been aware of the coronavirus. And this virus, just like every other virus, will continue to spread unless our attempts at managing it are successful. One of the first things we'll need to do, obviously, is early detection. And early detection comes from screening. Now, the Center of Disease Control right now uses what's known as PCR testing to test for the virus. But unfortunately, PCR testing for the coronavirus is not available to uh, primary healthcare providers. So they're just going by looking at symptoms of individuals. Now, some of the criteria that physicians and, and we as lay people uh, should bear in mind when trying to figure out whether or not someone might have the coronavirus is, have they had or do they have bad pneumonia? Anyone with suspected pneumonia obviously should be tested. And the number one way in which you will contract coronavirus or that you might contract coronavirus is by getting it from someone else. What's really, really interesting though is that when coronavirus is in a, um, a geographic area, 
it's commonly not recognized as a problem until enough people are infected. And then doctors' awareness is, uh, a, you know, is awoken at that point because they're like, wait a second, there's a lot of people here experiencing very similar symptoms. And sometimes by the time doctors rec recognize that something's going on, it's already gone through the community quite badly. And I would suggest because coronavirus is so deadly that primary health care providers are allowed via the CDC to get the proper PCR testing technology and that people should be tested early, even with the most mild symptoms. The test is inexpensive and relative to the lives that can be saved. It's my humble opinion that early PCR testing uh, should be provided. I mean, we know that coronavirus at this point is a pandemic and we must have uh, what's known as point of care diagnostics where every primary healthcare provider that you see should have the coronavirus PCR testing available. And also I believe the threshold for testing should be much lower. And what I mean by the by a, a lower threshold for testing, I mean that if someone has even mild viral symptoms, it's my opinion that they should be tested for the coronavirus. This way, we'll be able to prevent far more deaths and the spread of this um, of this brand new virus. Let's um, let's speak for a moment about the ways in which you can reduce your risk of becoming infected with the coronavirus or any virus uh, for, for that matter, even bacteria. And number one, what do you think it is? The number one way that we probably can reduce a risk of viral infection is hand washing. Some of you are thinking face masks. We'll get to that in a minute, but that would be a no on that, meaning face masks have a role but it's hand-washing that's particularly important. You want to wash your hands often, uh, particularly if you've been traveling and are in the airport or on, an, or on an airplane, but overall, wash your hands all the time. And we wanna practice what's known as local distancing. And that means when we are in an area that seems to be virally infected, we want to either leave that area or isolate ourselves as much as we can. We want to avoid touching as much as possible for obvious reasons. And when you do touch and when you have to touch, wash those hands. As far as masks, well, surgical masks are good for maybe 20 minutes or so. And once they get over wet, they're, they're practically uh, useless. But they are useful for helping a person be reminded not to touch their face or to at least to touch their face less often. The CDC and other agencies are hoping that the spring and summer months might be associated with less spread. That would be characteristically true of, of viruses in general, but of course, no one really knows. And the truth of the matter is, we, we just don't know a lot about this virus, even in terms of the viral uh, behavior right now around the world. The case fatality uh, from coronavirus is not really known. The statistics that you hear only involve the worst cases. So in terms of factors that seem to be the major ones that are responsible for spread of the coronavirus, would have to include travel. Travel would really be the, the, the top thing because we know that travel is a major factor for viral spread. And considering we're dealing with a virus with no cross vaccine available at all, there's no way uh, to boost one's immune system from a medical perspective. Nutritionally, there are ways of managing and boosting immunity. But again, as a disclaimer, I can't tell you that any of the things that I tell you, uh, whether they're hygienic or nutritional, uh, have been proven to uh, reduce one's risk of contracting and improving one's ability to manage
the coronavirus, but they do seem common sense to me, so I'm going to talk about them. So I said a couple of times already that we have no immunity to the coronavirus. And because of that, natural healthcare providers, regular physicians, governments must respond vigorously in terms of proper quarantining and teaching uh, communities the importance of not just hand washing, but some of the other uh, ways I mentioned earlier, like local distancing and avoiding touching and, and masks to reduce its spread. The severity of the coronavirus is also not exactly known. It may be different based on the way in which the coronavirus is transmitted, which is known as transmission or viral transmission. And also, we need to understand that the coronavirus really is responsible for what's known as a spectrum or spectrum of disease and spectrum of infection. So people can contract the coronavirus and have mild cold symptoms, for example, like runny nose, maybe a mild fever, but it can also range to a very, very different and deadly spectrum of disease, including deadly pneumonia and even multi-organ failure, and of course, death. And the resiliency of people with conditions like diabetes and hypertension and anyone over age 60 is reduced. And when one's resiliency is reduced, the underlying conditions of how the coronavirus affects a person are far worse. So persons with secondary diseases or diseases of any type would want to manage those diseases as well as possible to reduce one's risk of a fatal outcome with the coronavirus. So I'm hoping that everyone hears me here because what I'm saying is that one of the best ways to protect yourself from a deadly outcome from the coronavirus is to well manage whatever other health problems you might have. So when we're dealing with a novel pathogen, one at which we do not have any natural immunity like the coronavirus, it is essential for us to be mindful of secondary conditions, what are known as comorbidities. So my approach to a person with comorbidities, whether it's a malabsorption disease, whether it's heart disease, whether it's again diabetes and hypertension, autoimmune problems, cancer, for example, is to treat these conditions as well as possible so you can increase your resiliency against the deadly coronavirus. The thing to also realize is that even when a person who had been suffering from the coronavirus beats the virus, we know that the viral count is still high even when they're feeling better, which means that individual is a nidus of infection, could very easily spread a high viral load and vigorous virus to another individual. So in other words, post-infection complications are actually quite high, even when an individual recovers from the acute coronavirus illness. And people that have um, contracted the coronavirus and who have beat it, and a, a good number of other people may not be symptomatic or be, might be very mildly symptomatic. And these people can spread the virus by a process known as seeding. They seed the virus among the population. Now, you might wonder, how is it that people are actually dying from the coronavirus? What does that look like? Well, the majority of people that die from it die from a condition known as ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. And when I was doing my medical rotation, I saw patients, patients in the hospital uh, uh, with ARDS or ARDS, and they got that from, you can get that from a number of, of uh, other health triggers, not just viruses and bacterial infections, 
But one patient I remember who was riding um, like a doom buggy breathed in a large amount of dust particles and that caused acute respiratory distress syndrome and nearly killed him. I remember this individual being in the hospital bed. He was a fairly large man. He was unconscious. He had extremely labored breathing and his heart uh, was failing. And the man was within moments of death until the chief of medicine that I was learning from suggested that they turn the bed completely around, meaning rotate the bed. This was a type of bed where when you were lying on it, it could be turned over as if you would be hanging upside down underneath the, the bed once it's turned over. So they moved this gentleman in that way and suddenly he, he could breathe better and his heart rhythm turned to normal just based on the position of the person. I just thought that was an interesting side note. But, but back to the acute respiratory distress syndrome as the number one killer of people with the coronavirus. So in order to understand how this condition, acute respiratory distress syndrome, kills someone, we need to talk just for a minute about the anatomy of the lungs. So basically the lungs have what are known as alveolar sacs, and these are air-filled sacs that the body uh, takes in oxygen and diffuses that oxygen from breathing uh, into the alveolar cells and then into the capillary beds that line the alveolar sacs and then into the blood and then to the tissues. But what happens here is that the person with acute respiratory distress syndrome suffers from an accumulation of fluid between the alveolar sacs and the capillary beds. So there's a problem getting that oxygen from the alveolar cells into the blood. And there's a fluid, a fluid accumulation that occurs in the alveolar space. And it's a special kind of fluid accumulation known as a proteinaceous fluid. And that fluid makes and creates a hypoxic condition or a low oxygen uh, condition due to inflammation and that fluid accumulation. And then the person is put on uh, a ventilator and the doctors are waiting around hoping that death does not, be, does not come before the inflammation and fluid accumulation resolves which would then allow oxygen to get into the system. So it's really a waiting game at that point. There are no antiviral medications and no other specific therapies beyond fluids for the most part, possibly steroids, uh, that's it. So if a person does survive the coronavirus, they're surviving it mostly either in spite of medical care, which is not very effective. It's the person that's gonna save themselves or not. So what else can we do to potentially reduce our risks of getting the coronavirus infection, but importantly, improving one's immunity? Well, let's start with that. Uh, and I'm going to say this again because it's such an important topic, and I'm going to say it in the form of a disclaimer that I started describing earlier, that this information is not meant to have you believe that by practicing proper nutrition, you're going to kill this virus. But there's enough medical data, literature, and my 30-some-odd years of experience as a holistic uh, practitioner has told me that one can fight inflammation better, one can reduce fluid accumulation better, one can fight viruses better if their nutrition were superior. So there's that, but remember what we said earlier, that things like hand washing, avoiding uh, airplanes, uh, avoiding the countries uh, where the coronavirus is uh, clearly uh, infecting an alarming number of people, uh, practice local distancing, staying away from people that appear sick, avoiding touching, uh, using uh, masks, 
these are some of the ways to at least mitigate your chances of getting the coronavirus. So let me give you maybe four or five different nutritional ways of doing that. And then I want to return to some of the details of the coronavirus that, you, that I haven't told you yet that you need to know. The first one is making sure that you are avoiding sugar in your diet because sugar is an immune suppressive. That you're eating plenty of fruits and vegetables because we know they help boost our immune systems. Eating lower down on the food chain, perhaps a plant-based diet, which is less inflammatory. Eating organically whenever you can to avoid your intake of herbicides, fungicides, bactericides, those sorts of chemicals that can adversely affect our immune response. And avoiding any foods that you know simply make you feel unwell. And then practicing the appropriate nutrition and either natural medicine or traditional medical care for whatever other comorbid health problems you have. In other words, as I like to say during my uh, Ask the Blood Detective shows, give yourself what you need for what you need. See, the best way to manage immunity and health to prevent and offset disease, I believe, is by looking at your lab work, comparing that to detailed medical and health history, and then providing you with the dietary, lifestyle, nutritional supplement um, suggestions that are appropriate for your needs. So given your state of health and health con conditions, you might need very different uh, nutrition or nutritional supplementation compared to other individuals. But those dietary factors, those few things that I just measured, you've heard before a zillion times, and they are reasonable. But if you, for example, are protein deficient because you're eating a plant-based diet, that can adversely affect your immune system, increasing your risk of contracting any number of infections, not just viral. So you're not going to find in some book, and you should not be, uh, I doubt you're going to hear on any radio show any claims, I hope, that, that try to say to you that these are the things that you need for this virus specifically. So you want to look at your labs, make sure you fix nutritionally whatever you can that is amenable to nutrition in your, in your uh, laboratory work so that your immune system is as strong as it can be. So let's backtrack for a second. In terms of nutrition, you want to get your vitamin C levels correct. Vitamin C increases interferon. Interferon is a major immune um, molecule in the body. Uh, vitamin C is antiviral itself. I can go on all day about the antiviral effects of vitamin C, but you got to get the dose right. And the way to do that is you want to perform a test I talked about during other Ask the Blood Detective shows, and it's known as a vitamin C flush test. So you might use, for example, uh, you want to use a powdered form of buffered vitamin C. You don't want to use an acidic form like ascorbic acid. So you have your buffered powdered form of vitamin C, and you take a level teaspoon and you mix it in three ounces or so of water. And every 30 minutes, you take a level teaspoon of the buffered powdered vitamin C that you have dissolved in water. You continue this process every 30 minutes until you get diarrhea, and then you stop. The amount of vitamin C that you need every day is clearly not the amount of vitamin C that caused the diarrhea, but it's two thirds of that amount taken in two or three equally divided doses over the course of the day. That should be an amount of vitamin C that keeps you fully saturated, but does not cause a loose stool, but will almost always cause a regular bowel movement every day, at least one. So that's what you wanna do with vitamin C. If you have any reason or health problem that is such that uh, you should not be taking vitamin C, then please don't take it. Uh, one rare form of issue, I shouldn't say rare because I've seen it a number of times, but most people haven't heard of it, is something called the G6PD deficiency. Your doctor can check you for G6PD. They use a what's called a mottled red top blood tube, and it's generally covered by insurance. And that'll let you know if you have a genetic glitch, which has you not uh, handle vitamin C in a favorable way. In fact, vitamin C in large doses can cause a severe, what's called hemolytic anemia, where red blood cells literally, literally explode. And then there are some other reasons not to take vitamin C, but we don't have time to review those at the moment. And then probably one of the better ways of managing your immune system overall and health is to consume specific types of superfoods.
for people wanting to boost their immune systems, you want to have a large variety of phytonutrients, a large variety of plant molecules that have been shown to have some effect on your or on the immune system of, uh, of study groups. So I, I've done that research and I put together four products that I call Detox 1, Detox 2, Detox 3, and Detox 4, which you can find actually on my website um, on the contact page at the bottom. Or you can email me at info at blooddetective.com and I can send you the link so you can read about these products. But they contain hundreds of plant phytonutrients. The different types of detox products work on the entire body, but I designed each one to also focus more or less on specific organs. And they're different colors. One's green, one's orange, one's red, and one is purple. So you need lots of phytonutrients taken two to three times per day. Most nutrients that you'll take for your health overall uh, and for immunity really should be taken three times per day, as, as difficult as that is. And the reason for that is that a good number of these nutrients have a half-life that's only about half the day, let's say, or a third of the day. So if you're not taking multi-doses, then your blood levels and your blood concentration of these nutrients, which you want to have high, so you have protection as much as possible, will drop. So you've got to have it two to three times per day. Also, the supplement known as reduced glutathione. Now, some of you are under the impression that reduced glutathione is not well absorbed orally. It must be in, you know, compartmentalized or, or I should say, um, wrapped up in um, a liposomal membrane of some sort. And uh, the truth of the matter is that's all, that's all nonsense. I'm not saying that those forms of uh, nutrients that have liposomal packaging are not of some use, but um, it was never true that reduced glutathione was not absorbed orally. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, for years there was all this talk at scientific conventions that reduced glutathione was not absorbed well orally, but that was a lie and that was perpetuated by a specific nutrient company at a large convention and that's what they told everyone and everyone just believed it. As they were saying it, I was at that convention, I had my laptop open and I went to the National Library of Medicine to check the facts on it and I immediately knew that they were wrong. Uh, there were hundreds of studies, at, at least, that showed that oral glutathione worked just well, uh, just fine, without any packaging. So reduced glutathione is an immune molecule, it's known as a tripeptide, and it's made of three different amino acids that have some uh, antiviral properties to them, as well as immune modulating effects, uh, positive ones. Now, I could go on with what might be the best nutrients for the immune system, but it really needs to be based on what you actually need. I mean, think of yourself, and then think of a person uh, you know that you live with, or or that you know. Uh, the, the, you know, think of fifteen, twenty people that you know or have come across just today. Do you really think that you all need the same nutrition? Of course not. And the same immune modulators? Of course not. So questionnaires detailed interviewing uh, and laboratory tests, that's how you figure out what your needs are. Now let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, some important details that we should probably reiterate and add to what I've talked about already uh, regarding the coronavirus. First of all, the coronavirus is actually a family of viruses. There are 23 related viruses, apparently. And uh, there are four uh, groups of them, and then there's further details. And what's interesting is that the SARS virus uh, is part of those uh, related uh, viruses. As is the MERS virus, which some of you probably heard about. But when you hear about in the news, them referring to the coronavirus, what they're really talking about is the novel coronavirus uh, 2019 which is a brand new virus from what anyone can tell. Um, I'm sure they'll come up with a better name than the novel Coronavirus uh, 2019, but that's how it's referred to now. That is the specific virus we're talking about now. So where did this virus come from? There's a lot of speculation out there, uh, but it is really thought that it probably was from an animal. And they call that a spillover event 
when there is a virus that goes from and jumps from animals that are non-human to human beings, like the bat or a specific type of a, of a cat. The MERS virus, for example, was apparently from camels. Now, the December outbreak of this virus, the initial one, and some believe actually it was maybe in November, but either November or December, there was a, um, a seafood uh, wholesale market uh, in China, which was thought to be the original source, but evidence is suggesting it might not be. Uh, for, again, for detailed reasons that uh, we don't have time to get in here now. And like every other virus, it spreads and it mutates. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, though, is the what are known as a phytogenetic traits. When genetic analysis examines them uh, relative to the coronavirus, it seems that the first likely host of the virus was probably a bat. We also know that once you get the virus, it generally takes just a few days to become infective. And in terms of basic infection, no one really knows the number of people that a contagious person is likely uh, to affect, or I should say infect. But obviously, a person who is immunocompromised or has comorbid health problems, like I mentioned earlier, other health problems, they're going to be much more susceptible to contracting this infection. And in terms of the most common way that coronavirus is spread, it's likely due to um, respiratory droplets uh, from coughing uh, or sneezing. And, you know, when you cough or sneeze, there are cells in the respiratory tract of the infected person that are what is infecting people. But there is a difference between the droplet route and what's called airborne transmission. And this is a distinction you're not going to hear much um, out there, but this is um, correct. It is what an expert in infectious disease would say, that the droplet route is... involving small little droplets, but these small little droplets, they settle out in the air very quickly after about a minute or two. So the droplet route is best managed in terms of reducing uh, or reduction of infectious risk uh, with a surgical mask. So a surgical mask is good for reducing the droplet route mode of transmission. And in terms of the airborne route, this is a little different where we have, we're talking about tiny droplets. So if you're sharing the same space with someone who is um, susceptible to allowing airborne transmission, the infection is much more possible. And with the airborne transmission, the type of face mask that is best is known as the N95 face mask. That's N as a Nancy 95 face mask. People are running out there and getting all kinds of surgical masks, but they don't all work. Some of them literally only work for about 20 minutes. Once they get wet, they're done. And then there's, of course, transmission through contaminated objects. And they, that's called fomite, F-O-M-I-T-E, or fomite infection. And that can that can spread... When a person, uh, you know, coughs and their hand, you know, touches a doorknob and let's say in a bathroom and then another person grabs that doorknob and then, then there you go. Then that's your spread. And then a good follow-up question to that mode of transmission would be, you know, how long can viruses survive on surfaces? How long can the coronavirus survive? You know, that, that again is an unknown factor because number one, it would depend upon uh, the type of surface. Even the ambient temperature or humidity, all of these things are factors in survivability. So survivability of the coronavirus could be from a few minutes uh, to a few hours to a few days. And how contagious is this? Well, first of all, it's not thought 
that asymptomatic carriers are responsible for much infection. And this was based on an article in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, you know, whether I believe that, I'm not really sure. It just flies in the face of what I understand in terms of uh, viral infectivity, that people can be asymptomatic and still uh, promote a virus. And if this is still the beginning of this uh, coronavirus uh, problem, then to draw a conclusion at this point that asymptomatic people or people that don't have, you know, the, the common viral symptoms um, could not spread it is, um, I think, premature at best. So the next question I, I suppose that follows is, how contagious is the coronavirus? Well, the contagiousness of a virus depends upon the virulence of the virus itself, you know, how, how tough it is. But also the same thing about uh, the individual. What is their innate re immune resiliency? The incubation period matters. The contagiousness might also vary with whether or not it's airborne, whether the person is asymptomatic or not. Not much more to say about the contagiousness of the virus at this point. We, we simply do not know. So what about the development of a vaccine? Well, experts in this area that I have uh, investigated seem to suggest that even if we got on top of things tomorrow to develop a vaccine, the soonest that could possibly happen is three to four months. And I think that number is um, far too short and um, just unrealistic considering how little we know about the coronavirus. But make no mistake, the coronavirus, not just in my opinion, but in the opinion of other experts say that this virus is a, an existential risk to humanity, that it could affect human beings across the globe in a profound way. Others say that's not true, that this existential risk does not exist. I would say whether it exists or not, you must take proper precautions Otherwise, you might end up more susceptible to not only the coronavirus, but other types of uh, infectious agents. Let's uh, digress for a moment and talk about some of the specific sorts of tests uh, in some detail that might be important for your overall health and well-being, because that's really what you need to be working on here. You don't want to just take nutrients or follow uh, lifestyle practices that are antiviral focused. Because if you neglect other areas of your health, you're just not going to get those effects. I think a peripheral blood smear is important because a peripheral blood smear can tell you the structure and function of uh, lymphocytes, the antiviral cells, neutrophils, antibacterial cells. It can tell you about all sorts of nutritional issues which you cannot or are not best uh, determined on other tests. For example, you can look at under a microscope, which is what a peripheral blood smear is, where your blood is looked at under high power under a microscope, sometimes with um, um, materials that uh, dye the different structures of the cell and make them more identifiable, and sometimes without that to keep them alive. That's called the live cell analysis. The next uh, test assessment would be a uh, bioimpedance test. A bioimpedance test, uh, again, I've talked about these on, uh, on my show before. That's a test that uses an alternating current that goes through muscle, water, and fat in the body at different speeds or rates. And based upon the density of muscle relative to fat, relative to water, a computer can extrapolate out your percentage of muscle, water, and fat and your metabolic rate and the water balance in and outside of your cells which has to do with the function of your body. It's a major, major predictor of morbidity and mortality. Uh, what I mean, mean to say is that the bioimpedance test is one of the best tests to predict morbidity and mortality from any cause. So the better the, the test result is, the better off you are. So no matter what you're trying to do for your health, meditation, uh, a plant-based diet, detoxification, taking nutrients, whatever it is, if you do not improve your lean body mass, 
then you are not improving your lean body mass. And lean body mass retention is associated with longer, um, if not longer life, long, uh, a shorter, well, it is. It's just, okay, let me say this uh, this way, because this is, can be complicated. The better off your body composition, the lower your disease risk overall, and the lower your risk of dying of anything, and the higher your quality of life. As you age, you atrophy, you shrink. Your lean mass shrinks. Your lean mass are your organs that produce the blood test that you see. If you lose your lean mass, you can't control your organs as well because they're atrophying, and therefore your labs are worse, then your disease risk is worse. I hope I made that clear. So you always want that to be as strong as possible for any immune or general health benefits. Then tests are things like vitamin C levels, use of vitamin C, uh, inflammation, oxidation potential, absorption. These are fundamental tests, in my opinion, for general health and well-being. Okay, so let's back up again. What about, let's talk about nutrition one more time. I've said a couple of times that the best nutrition for overall health and well-being and for infection resistance has to be based upon what you as an individual or what your body actually requires. So if you are, let's say, if you have a, a poor diet and you don't have like herbs uh, in, your, in your diet, like oregano and, and basil and fennel and garlic and peppermint and rosemary, then you might be more susceptible to any number of illnesses because these plants might improve your immune system, but they might not. And even though you might have them in your diet, doesn't mean they'll improve your immune system. You might have to take them in concentrated uh, supplemental forms. But just to, for thoroughness, I wanted to discuss with you about five or 10 um, herbs and nutrients that have been shown to be antiviral in their effects of known viruses. None of them have been studied on the coronavirus. My favorite one is probably N-acetylcysteine or NAC. NAC is like the forgotten amino acid. I don't know why. The amount of study on this is through the roof as an antiviral, as an immunomodulator. It boosts glutathione levels naturally. It's a chelator. It's antibacterial. Um, it's anti-mucolytic. That's important too because, you know, when viruses, uh, when you contract a virus, and if you have mucus or excessive mucus, the, the mucus serves as a, as a source of, of food, really, and growth of viruses. They call that a, that a nidus of infection. So the mucus would serve as a nidus of infection. And then there's, of course, let's switch to another one that's uh, on my mind, would be oregano. So that's a, that's a popular herb in the mint family that's known for some pretty impressive um, medicinal uh, qualities. And it's got various plants or phytonutrient compounds in it, which have very strong uh, antiviral effects. In, I remember in one test tube study, both oregano oil and one of its active ingredients reduced the activity of the NM, I'm sorry, the MNV uh, or, or NOAA or norovirus within about 15 minutes after exposure to it. That's, that's pretty amazing. And the MNV is highly contagious and the primary cause of stomach flu in humans. It's very similar to the human uh, norovirus and used in scientific studies because the human norovirus is notoriously difficult to grow in laboratory settings. And then the other um, herb, which is in the mint family, is sage. So sage is an aromatic herb that's long been used in traditional medicine to treat viral infections. And it's probably due to its content, sephicanolide, pronounced that three times fast. And, uh, and sage uh, work best when the leaves and the stem of the plant are used. And there was some test tube research, I recall, 
that showed that this herb may fight human immunodeficiency virus type 1, that's HIV-1, which can lead to AIDS. So there was a study where sage extract significantly inhibited HIV activity. Uh, it prevented the virus from entering the target cells. Again, no one knows if this will work with the coronavirus, but it seems reasonable that we might want to take it. And then, of course, there's basil. There's many types of basil. There's uh, sweet and holly varieties uh, that may fight various types of infections. Uh, at one test tube study, I remember, found that sweet basil extracts, um, including uh, one of the more important compounds called a pigeonin, uh, exhibited very potent effects against herpes viruses, also hepatitis B and enterovirus. The next one would be fennel. So fennel is a licorice flavored plant that may fight certain viruses. Once again, there was a test tube study that showed that fennel extract inhibited strong or exhibited, I should say, very strong antiviral effects against, uh, was I believe it was the herpes viruses. Yes, it was. And uh, parainfluenza uh, type 3, which causes respiratory infections uh, in cattle. And also the main compound of fennel and its essential oil demonstrated very powerful anti-effects, antiviral effects against uh, herpes virus families as well. And according to some animal research, fennel may also boost your immune system and decrease inflammation, which may likewise help combat viral infections. And what about our other favorite herb? That would be garlic, right? Who doesn't love garlic? Garlic is a very popular natural uh, remedy uh, used for a wide variety of uh, conditions, including viral infections. There was a study of 23 adults uh, with warts caused by human uh, papillovirus, or HPV, and when they applied garlic extract to the affected areas twice daily, they eliminated the warts in all of them after just two weeks. And additionally, older test tube studies note that garlic may have antiviral activity against influenza A, influenza B, HIV, HSV1, viral pneumonia, rhinovirus, which causes the common cold. This is quite a lot of impressive study. What else? Well, how about lemon balm? We don't talk much about it, but lemon balm is a lemony plant that's commonly used in teas and seasonings, and it's quite concentrated in certain uh, essential oils and plant compounds that have antiviral activities. So test tube research showed that lemon balm has strong antiviral effects against the avian influenza or uh, bird flu, uh, herpes virus, HIV-1, enterovirus uh, 71, which can cause severe infections uh, in infants and in children. We've got a time for a couple more because the more you round out your diet with these things, the better your immune resiliency will be. Peppermint. Peppermint has long been known to have powerful antiviral qualities and commonly is added to teas and extracts and tinctures meant to naturally treat viral infections. Now, its leaves and essential oils contain active compounds including menthol and rosemaric acid, which have antiviral and anti-inflammatory activities. And what's really interesting is that there was yet another test tube study. Peppermint leaf extract inhibited potent antiviral activities against respiratory syncytial virus, so the RSV, and significantly decreased levels of inflammation or inflammatory compounds. And then there's rosemary. So rosemary is frequently used in cooking, but likewise has therapeutic applications due to its numerous phytonutrient plant compounds, including oleanolic acid. Now, oleanolic acid has displayed antiviral activity against herpes viruses, HIV, influenza, and hepatitis in animals and test tube studies. Plus, rosemary extract has demonstrated antiviral effects against herpes viruses and hepatitis A, which affect the liver. And what about our old favorite echinacea? Don't forget it. You got to use it. Echinacea is probably one of the most popularly used ingredients in herbal medicine due to its impressive health-promoting properties. Many parts of the plant, including its flowers, the leaves, the roots, 
are used to make natural remedies. In fact, Echinacea purpura, a variety that produces cone-shaped flowers, was used by Native Americans to treat a wide variety of conditions, including viral infections. I recall several studies that uh, suggested that certain varieties of Echinacea, including um, Echinacea pallida, uh, Echinacea augustifolia, and Echinacea purpura, are partially effective at fighting viral infections like herpes and influenza. And notably, the Echinacea purpura is thought to have immune-boosting effects as well, making it uh, particularly useful for treating viral infections. Let's talk about licorice. First of all, if you have hypertension, you're not supposed to take licorice because it can cause what's known as a pseudo-hyperaldosterone effect, increasing aldosterone, which increases blood pressure in some people. Um, I've given people with hypertension echinacea in my practice over the years, you know, monitoring them carefully, but, and I've never seen licorice raise uh, pressure. Although I have recommended licorice for people that have hypotension or low blood pressure, um, because it acts as an adaptogenic herb on the adrenal glands, and that seems to help hypotension. But let's talk a little bit more about licorice because it's, you know, it's been used um, in traditional Chinese medicine and other natural practices uh, for centuries. And the glycyrrhizin uh, and a few other active compounds are just some of the, the active components in licorice that have powerful antiviral effects. Test tube studies also using licorice demonstrated that licorice root extract is quite effective against HIV, RSV, herpes viruses, and severe acute respiratory syndrome um, related uh, coronavirus. So this is brand spanking new. And um, we know that the severe acute respiratory syndrome related coronavirus or SARS-CoV causes a serious type of pneumonia. And for those of you interested in the medical references, there's a magazine, uh, a, a medical research magazine known as In Vivo. And in 2016, there was an article known as Antiviral and Anti-Tumor Activity of Licorice Root Compounds, which substantiates uh, the statement that I just made. And there was another article in the Journal of Ethnopharmacology uh, entitled Water Extract of Licorice Had Antiviral Activity Against Human Respiratory Syncytal Virus in Humans Respiratory Tract Cell Lines. So these are serious studies. And this study is unbelievable. This was in The Lancet in 2003, June. And the title of the article was Glycyrrhizin, an Active Component of Licorice Roots and replication of SARS-associated coronavirus. And the summary of this says here, of all the compounds, they checked several of them that were, they, whether or not they had antiviral effects, of all the compounds, glycyrrhizin, that's from licorice, was the most active in inhibiting replication of the SARS-associated virus. Our findings suggest that glycyrrhizin should be assessed for treatment of SARS. Wow, isn't that something? All right, I'm going to add one more, and that would be astragalus. So astragalus is a flowering plant that's prop, very popular in Chinese medicine, and it's got these compounds known as uh, polysaccharides or APSs, which have significant immune-enhancing and antiviral uh, activity, no joke. Also, ginger seems to have some antiviral activity as well, particularly uh, based on these test tube studies, the antiviral effects were against the uh, avian uh, influenza, also RSV, even uh, feline uh, or FCV virus. And um, do, I, do I have any others? Yes, I would say ginseng. You know, ginseng, um, which can be found in Korean and American, you know, varieties uh, in test tubes, showed that the Korean red ginseng extract inhibited significant effects upon RSV, herpes viruses, and hepatitis A. So those are just some of the antiviral compounds. Whether or not they'll be antiviral in you depend on what the rest of your health is. Remember, you have to manage your baseline health first because if you have any comorbid health problems, they will make you more susceptible to any virus. And we know for a fact they make you more susceptible to coronavirus. 
Well, I hope you did find the show useful. You might want to listen to it again. It's going to be posted up on my website at drmichaelwald.com. Within the next day or two, you can look under the blog section. Just click on the title of it. If you have questions or concerns or you want to see me uh, for your personal health, either in person or uh, through a distance consultation, call me and let me know at 914-552-1442. That's 914-552-1442. And feel free to email me at info at blooddetective.com. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Show you a statue.